Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Harry Munt for a conversation about the former Rashidun Caliphate's hegemony in the Mediterranean Basin. Dr. Munt is Senior Lecturer in Medieval History at the University of York, based in the UK. He is author of the monograph, The Holy City of Medina, Sacred Space in Early Islamic Arabia, which was published by Cambridge University Press, and he joins us from the UK. Welcome to the show, Harry. Hi, thanks for having me. What was the Rashidun Caliphate? Um, The Rashidun Caliphate is a term usually used by modern scholars to refer to the first four caliphs uh, in Islamic history. So the Prophet Muhammad uh, died in 632 and he was succeeded by uh, an individual called Abu Bakr, one of his closest companions, who became the first caliph. Uh, the Arabic, uh, the English word caliph uh, comes from the Arabic word khalifa, meaning a, a deputy or successor. And, and Abu Bakr was the first of those. There's, uh, there's, after Abu Bakr, there's three more caliphs who are usually considered under this label of Rashidun. Um, the second caliph Omar, the third caliph Osman, and the fourth caliph Ali. They, it's unlike other labels to describe caliphates. Uh, you know, listeners may be familiar with terms like Umayyad caliphate or Abbasid caliphate. Um, the Rashidun uh, label doesn't refer to a dynasty. There's, there's, no, there's no real way in which these four caliphs can be considered to have been uh, sort of a close family or related to each other in a particularly close dynastic way. They, uh, it's a term that gets used almost of convenience by modern scholars to refer to these four caliphs who, pre, who, who in, in a sense, predated what we, what we know to have been the onset of dynastic caliphates from, from the Umayyad period onwards. So when uh, the, um, so in, the, in this period in the 7th century CE, um, would they have been referencing because you do you do bring up an important point and uh, as you as you know and we chat about this brief, brief briefly before the show um dr gerald hodding was on the show uh, um it was published about a week ago on the umayyad caliphate's hegemony in the mediterranean basin and the distinction is that the umayyad caliphate was a dynasty it it, it uh it was um uh, familial uh the caliphs that would come into power there was a there was familial uh, ties, whereas you brought up the point that uh, these were different different families, right? Um, so in this period of time, would they, and maybe this this uh, a good t- uh, kind of uh, question asked too at this point is what the etymology of the term Rashidun is. So in this period of time, would they, uh, they're different families. You, you said that Rashidun is a way to describe the different ki- ki- caliphs. Did they, con- did they consider themselves Rashidun in any way, and what's the etymology of the ra- Rashidun? Yeah, thanks. Good question. I yeah. should have I should have been clear about oh, that sorry. earlier. Um, yeah. The um, the term Rashidun means uh, rightly guided. Um, it's a it's a way. It's a term that was. Uh, it, it kind of comes out of a, of a of well centuries really of debate amongst Muslims of different communal identities, different um, yeah, sort of religious communities among Muslims, how to how to understand legitimate caliphal succession following the death of the prophet. And 
Um, there were, there's basically a huge number of different opinions on who legitimate caliphs were. And over the, sort of, I guess, maybe over the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries, um, uh, Sunni Muslims came up, to the, the, came up with the consensus that these first four caliphs in the order in which they became caliph was the legitimate progression of, of caliphal succession after the death of Muhammad. Now, they are distinguished from those that came next, so from so the fifth caliph, Muawiyah, onwards, uh, are often seen as having uh, begun to abandon uh, the, the right, the correct ideals of caliphate and how the, you know, they, they, they are said to have often thought to have led the community in incorrect ways. And, and therefore the term Rashidun was used to distinguish the first four caliphs who, according to this consensus model, had been, had been the rightly guided leaders and, of the community and successors to Muhammad over the 30-year period that they were in charge. What, uh, if, if scholars know, when was the the phrase Rashidun then um, you used to describe this 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 period in this this group any any sense um, it, it, it comes out of this debate that's going on um, certainly over the ninth century onwards I mean it may it may well be it may well be a term that was used earlier and and I've you know, in the sense that it means rightly guided, I've no doubt that Caleb, these caliphs at the time probably saw themselves as rightly guided and uh, and and legitimate caliphs. Um, but that, that sort of that sort of emerging model that these four together constitute a group called the Rashidun can be can be seen emerging among Sunni Muslims over the sort of ninth, tenth, eleventh centuries. And we're going to spend most of the time on the, more of the Mediterranean basin because that's that's in the catchment area of this this show. I was curious though. There's uh, when I did a um, a search on different uh, caliphs, there is a what I saw was a fifth, and and this wasn't like an extensive search, so that's why I'm going to ask you the question. Um, there there was a fifth that I that came up in that search, um, and uh, Hassan. Do you know who who that would would have would have been by 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 chance? Uh, or, Hassan. Yeah, Hassan. I might the pronounce. I might not be pronouncing it. Correctly. Uh, so, um, I assume you're referring to Hassan ibn Ali, um, who was the the son of the fourth of these caliphs, Ali, um, who some considered to have been his legitimate successor uh, after Ali was murdered in 661. Um, we usually talk about the next caliph as being this figure Muawiyah, who would uh, Ali's caliphate is dominated by a period of civil war. Um, and, and Ali, Ali and the third and fourth caliphs, Osman and Ali, their, their legitimacy is particularly contested by many. Um, and after Ali's um, murder in 661, um, modern historians, we often jump straight to Muawiyah as, as the victor against him as his successor. But um, uh, Muawiyah did actually have to come to an arrangement with Ali's son al-Hassan by which al-Hassan gave up his claim to the caliphate uh, which was which was achieved quite quickly so that might be the figure that you're asking about okay it, it, it might be yeah the name came up so I wanted to ask because I, I I'd read um, there I'd read uh, five uh, and then you'd mentioned uh, four maybe maybe the page I was reading was was maybe there was that was a uh, a contended kind of uh, a point, but but the consensus of the scholarly community is that there is four. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean most most people. Yeah, don't, yeah. When we okay. talk about the Russian caliphate now, we talk about the first four caliphs. Okay, Abu Bakr, Omar, Osman, and Ali. Okay, I understand. Okay, um, so when the the Rashidun uh, caliphate and and so it, really what we're talking about is a period of time with four caliphs. Um, 
what would the territory overall and again obviously we're going to spend more time on the mediterranean but i don't i don't want to circumscribe this question to just the mediterranean what would the geographic demarcation of their territory have been when 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 they they initially came into rule so um yeah, I mean, the, the, the extent of the territory that they ruled over changed remarkably over this 30-year period. Um, so when when Muhammad died in 632 and Abu Bakr succeeded him, the Muslim community uh, based in Medina in Western Arabia in a region called the Hejaz, um, its authority extended across um, relatively large parts of the Arabian Peninsula, particularly the Western and Central Arabian Peninsula. Um, but not much further than that. And, uh, and in the immediate aftermath of Muhammad's death and Abu Bakr's succession, um, according to uh, quite a lot of sources, there was a, essentially a series of rebellions in Arabia against the rule of, of Medina and its, and its, its new caliph, uh, which led to a, a period of wars known as the Ridda Wars, the Wars of Apostasy, uh, in which Abu Bakr had to sort of bring the Arabian Peninsula back under the control of the Muslim community in Medina. So over his two-year reign from 632 to 634, um, the, the sort of, I guess, the geographical focus of, of, of his rule is, is very much the Arabian Peninsula. It's under his successor, Omar, who rules over a decade from 634 to 44, that we begin to see the expansion of that community and its conquest of territory outside of the Arabian Peninsula. So during Omar's caliphate, uh, we see expansion towards, um, so towards Iraq on the one hand, uh, into the former, into the, what was then the Sasanian Empire, and then in the west we see expansion into, uh, into the Roman Empire, into territories of the Roman Empire around the Mediterranean. So in probably in early 634, the invasion of, of Syria and Palestine gets underway um, in earnest, and then. Uh, and then later in Omar's caliphate, in, in the probably late 639, in the early 640s, Egypt is conquered as well. So we start to see the gradual um, expansion of territory under the, under the control of, of the caliphs, who are still at this time based in Medina, um, in, in Arabia. By the mid-650s, so during the caliphate of the third of these, Othman, the conquests are beginning to sort of uh, slow down a bit. And I guess the territory that's controlled by that point, so, and that's more or less the territory of, uh, that remains sort of the Rashidun Caliphate Empire, um, runs, I guess, more or less from Egypt, perhaps getting into what's now Eastern Libya. Uh, it's about as far west as it gets through then Egypt and Palestine and Syria, through into um, northern Syria, northern Iraq, Iraq, and then bits of central and southern Iran. And then that plus the Arabian Peninsula is the sort of totality of the territory that we're talking about, really. What, what do you think their interest or interests were in expanding their territorial holdings? Said another way, why not stay in the more the Arabian Peninsula. So there's a few different ways of thinking about this. Um, the You can take a sort of longer term perspective in which uh, the involvement of Arabians in the history of the two much more famous empires to the north, the Roman Empire and the Sasanian Persian Empire. There's a, there's a long history of Arabian groups being involved in the politics of those empires, um, partly through uh, partly through raiding uh, territory in those empires, 
but also through um, through allying with uh, local governors or even imperial authorities to provide security and military service along the Arabian frontiers of those empires. So if you take a sort of longer view, what you see is this history of Arabians interacting in these ways with these two empires. And then, so there's, and in the late sixth, early seventh century, that some of those relationships between the empires and inhabitants of Arabia break down. So there's two particularly well-known groups that were operated with the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire, respectively, the, um, the so-called Sassanids or Jaffnids with the Roman Empire and the so-called Lachmids or Nusrids with the Persian Empire. And they had been in sort of allied uh, treaty arrangements with those empires. But over the late 6th and early 7th century, those broke down. And so though that sort of protection on the Arabian side of those empire borders had disappeared, which of course perhaps made them more vulnerable to renewed uh, to renewed attacks from that direction. So that's the sort of longer term way of looking at it. That Arabians had always been involved in the politics of of you know the borderlands, the Syrian Iraqi borderlands of those empires. Um, in terms of things that are maybe we see quite differently in the early in the in the seventh century then in the Rashidun period. Um, one thing that comes across very clearly from our sources is a is a focus on Jerusalem and Palestine in particular as a as a, as a holy land and as an area that that um, is particularly targeted for expansion. There's a uh, a mid seventh century Armenian chronicler who talks about the early Arabians invasion of Syria and he presents this he. He presents this very much as a, initially, at least, a Jerusalem, an, an invasion centered on capturing the holy city of Jerusalem. And he presents this as a religious imperative for this Arabian Muslim community, that, uh, that they had been made aware uh, through the activity of their prophets that they had this, this Abrahamic inheritance to the, to the Holy Land and that they were setting out to, to reclaim that inheritance. And we also see the importance of Jerusalem and, and Palestine in other ways as well. Um, Unlike anywhere else in in among the among the conquered territories, um, the the reigning caliph Omar, uh, the second of these Rashidun caliphs, actually goes in person, according to many narratives, to receive the surrender of Jerusalem um, in six thirty eight. It's the only it's the only city that that the sort of the suggestion is so strongly attached to that a reigning caliph actually went in person to be involved in the conquest or in this case the surrender. Of, of that city. So there does seem to be a sort of, uh, in some ways, a religious and perhaps apocalyptic imperative aiming towards the conquest of, of Jerusalem and Palestine as well. Um, other ways you can see it um, are, um, I thought I mentioned that during uh, the reign of the first caliph, Abu Bakr, there have been wars in Arabia to, uh, to bring these rebellious tribes back under the fold of Medinan political hegemony. Um, and then I guess you can, you know, once you've once these conquests have got to the fringes of the Arabian Peninsula, that they've just kept going uh, into Syria and Iraq. I mean, that's another way of looking at it. Um, so there's 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 slightly different ways of understanding it, but there's and there's there's quite a lot going on there. The the show coincidentally has also recently covered the Sasanian Empire's um, hegemony in the Mediterranean basin. As you know, um, relatively speaking, it wasn't a, a long period of time their hegemony in the Mediterranean basin, but it was. But we covered it in an episode with Dr. Michael Decker. Um, so, the uh, how would you describe then the relationship that the 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 Rashidun uh, uh, Caliphate had with the Sasanians? Um, 
And what I mean by that is, um, if there was conflict, please please share the conflict. But was there, what, but was it more complex than that? Can you maybe expand on what's known about in this period what that relationship would have would have been? It's hard to, I mean, the basic answer is it's hard to see it as anything other than dominated by military confrontation. I mean, the it's during the era of the Rashidun Caliphs that the Sasanian Empire is 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 brought to an end. Um, the the invasions of the Roman Empire, of course, don't bring the Roman Empire to an end, although they do end up conquering a vast swathe of Roman territory. Um, they do conquer more or less the entirety of the, of the Sasanian Empire, and they bring the Sasanian Empire to an end. There's a, a big battle in Iraq at a place called al Qadisiya in the 630s that uh, more or less ends in a catastrophic defeat for the Sasanian army at the hands of these Arabian invaders. Uh, in the subsequent years, they take the Sasanian capital, uh, Tessiphon, uh, the Arabs call it Modern Salah, uh, not Modern, sorry, they call it El Modern, in uh, central, uh, near, just south of Baghdad today. And uh, and then the Sasanian Empire has to flee to the east, uh, where he's eventually caught up with and, and dies in rather murky circumstances near the city of uh, Murv in modern Turkmenistan. And that's in the early 650s. So during the period of the Rashidun Caliphate, the Sasanian Empire is completely, is completely conquered. Um, in terms of what the what those conquerors thought about like why they were conquering the Sasanian Empire uh, and what they thought of the of the people of the empire that they were conquering it's a little bit hard that we we have rather few contemporary sources for that period we have sources written a couple of centuries later in which uh, that the the authors of these sources like to compare the the simple austere piety of the early muslims with the uh you know the rich the the, the luxurious wealthy lifestyles of the sasanians and and that's given as a reason for why the sasanian empire ultimately fell that it was you know they were they were too they were won over by wealth and luxury and and you know they, and therefore and therefore they weren't seen by god as the rightful people to to rule that territory so we get that, that perspective later but at the time i mean it's, you know it's hard to say it's it's hard to say much beyond the fact that, it, that they they conquered it <laughs> How much territory of the Romans, Byzantines, would they have um, uh, claimed in this period? Uh, so they, during the Rashidun period, they conquered pretty much all of Syria, Palestine, um, and then a province that's known to Arabic authors as the Jazeera. It's kind of, I guess nowadays it's kind of split between northeastern Syria, southeastern Turkey, northern Iraq. Um, and that area had previously been divided between the Roman and the Persian empires. So there's Roman territory up there that was conquered as well. Um, they conquered Egypt, uh, which had been a very important Roman province, um, or collection of Roman provinces. And, uh, and, and had, during the Rashidun period had started to expand a little further west into what's now Libya as well. Um, an army did reach as far as uh, the Roman province of Africa, um, roughly overlapping with modern Tunisia. Uh, in the late 640s, but it wasn't an army of conquest. It didn't, although, the, although we're told the expedition that far west was successful, it didn't lead to permanent conquest at that point. It was a, it was a raid that brought back, you know, captured wealth. Um, so that's about as far as we see. In the Mediterranean itself, there are raids on, on islands in the Mediterranean. Uh, Cyprus gets raided uh, at least twice in 649, 650. Um, and large amounts of gold and silver and also uh, captured slaves are taken away 
from Cyprus. Uh, Rhodes, I think, is is uh, raided in in the 650s. And there is actually a, although I guess the conquests at this time really do stop um, at northern Syria, they don't really get into Anatolia at this point. Um, there is an attempt to launch an expedition towards Constantinople in the mid 650s um, that combines a, a, an, an overland army heading from northern Syria and a naval force um, which um, uh, there's a there's a famous battle between this naval force and the Roman fleet just off the coast of Lycia it's called the Battle of the Masts or um, in Arabic sources and but that and that leads to a to an attempt to take Constantinople but that that attempt in the mid 650s does fail and doesn't doesn't go anywhere so that we see we see raiding a bit further north and west in the Roman world but the permanent conquests in this period are really Egypt uh, Syria Palestine and and this province now called the Jazeera. among the former Roman territories. Uh, Do scholars know to what degree the attempt on uh, Constantinople Constantinople occurred? Was it just planning and and never got out of planning, or was there actually a physical attempt that occurred? No, no, there was an actual serious attempt, I think, to take Constantinople in the 650s. Um, The, it it seems to, it's it's really the, it, it comes across as the, as the plan of, a, of the governor of Syria, the new uh, Muslim governor of Syria, who's um, Muawiyah, who eventually becomes the fifth caliph. Um, before he becomes caliph, he has a very long stint, about two decades, as governor of Syria. Um, and he seems to take this assault on Constantinople quite seriously. Um, he uh, himself wanted to lead the land army and and someone else led the naval force but no it does seem to have been a real an actual real invasion and as i said there was this there was a real naval battle and the army did get into anatolia before having to return the, the naval fleet is it's a little bit murky the the naval fleet is said by one source to have been destroyed in a miraculous storm and that's what saved the byzantine you know, the roman empire constantinople from from this attack um and i mean whether that happened or not i mean something happened because eventually this this attack did fail and the naval force didn't didn't do its job and the land army had to retreat so but that doesn't mean it wasn't a it wasn't a real attempt and we can see in the attacks on islands in the mediterranean in the build-up to that i said uh, these attacks on cyprus and Rhodes as well um an effort to perhaps prepare the groundwork for for more advanced um, sort of military efforts towards Constantinople. And there's a, there's a defensive uh, reason as well. I mean, Cyprus is not very far off the coast of Syria. And uh, and so for for stopping Roman attempts at reconquering Syria, I suppose, making sure that Cyprus wasn't a, wasn't a, a clearly controlled part of the Roman Empire still was was quite important. It's worth it's worth emphasizing at that point that we, with hindsight, we obviously think about these conquests as permanent, and we, we, we know that the, the Roman Empire permanently lost Syria and Egypt uh, at these points, but people at the time didn't know that, of course, and there are Roman attempts to retake these provinces in uh, after the fall of Egypt, a couple, a few years after the fall of Egypt. There is actually there is a Roman invasion of Egypt again uh, in the mid-640s in an attempt to take back uh, at least Alexandria, if not more of that of that province so the the on i mean you you sort of talked a bit about uh, about the hegemony of the russian caliphate in the mediterranean in this period i mean it, it's not it it's the russian the the, uh, the this early islamic empire in the mediterranean world is not 
you're not totally dominant at this time. The Romans are still a real, still are still a real presence in the in the region, and part of the part of the efforts directed towards Constantinople can be seen in that light. In islands like Rhodes and and um, Cyprus, is there any evidence that they they developed more permanent settlements there? Not in this period. The we actually have quite good contemporary evidence for what happened as a result of the raids on Cyprus. Um, there's a there's actually a couple of inscriptions that from the island that record. Um, essentially the seizure of quite a lot of people as slaves uh, who were ta- also captives, at least taken away as captives um, from Cyprus. And so we get the impression, I think the impression is very clear that these are, are raids, perhaps on the one hand aimed at, at capturing wealth and, and property, and on the other hand aimed at making sure the Byzantines can't use the islands as a, as a, as a launch pad for their own reinvasions of for their own invasions of Syria or Egypt. How would you describe their level of competency as seafaring people and what's known about how they they gained the skill set that they did yeah it's a very good question um for seafaring um they pre- the they presumably made much use of existing expertise in that area among the inhabitants of Egypt and and Syria, Palestine. So um, these are, I mean, obviously Egypt and Syria are regions with, you know, famous ports like Alexandria and Caesarea and and many others that have had, you know, long histories of cross-Mediterranean interactions and things. So I think there would have been a lot of expertise there. We do read a little, um, this is possibly later than the Rashidun period, there are documents that survive from Egypt that talk about uh, requisitioning of supplies, and I think a conscription of people to serve in the Navy in the Mediterranean from Egypt, but I think that's later than the Rashidun period. Um, so what? So in terms of the actual, you know, the, te- the building of the, the technology that led to the building of the ships and, and, and much of the sailing expertise probably came from, from locals who were of, of these regions who have been whose families have been doing it for generations but um we do notice so um the, the top level of control however does seem to have gone to arabians and Muawiyah put in charge of of the fleets he dispatched at least one of the ones to cyprus and the one towards constantinople a figure called um abul atwar who who was an arabian he was a i think he was from the tribe of salam uh, so from the Arabian Peninsula, he'd been a he'd been a general or a commander at land battles as well, um, and he was put in charge of the fleet. Presumably turned out because he got put in charge again after his first expedition. Presumably turned out to have to have you know learned, learned how to do the job okay. So um, so we see maybe at that top level, people from Arabia becoming involved in 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 in, in fleet activities, in sea naval activities, but um, but I assume that the the vast majority of, of people involved in those were were people from the from the newly conquered territories. In some of these territories like Egypt, um, the Levant, um, people that either didn't have the means to flee or didn't want to flee and wanted to stay. Um, what's known about uh, the Rashidun Caliphate's response to these people and 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 policies um, towards um, these people? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I think, obviously, I think we have to assume the overwhelming majority of people did not flee. 
Um, it, would, it would only have been an option for some. We are told about some people who fled uh, perhaps back to the Roman Empire or, or, or to places that stayed within the Roman Empire um, as part of the conquest. Uh, we have, although only from much later sources, we do have reports about the, uh, the, the provisions of treaties that were arranged between the conquerors and, the, and various cities that submitted to them. Um, some of these treaties do refer specifically to people having the option of leaving or staying. Um, and I suppose, I mean, these treaties give slightly different ideas of what provisions were from place to place. But I, I suppose uh, a, a sort of overarching uh, condition that comes across clearly in a lot of them is that people who stayed and remained as non-Muslims uh, were uh, perfectly protected in that status, uh, but, the, but, their, but conditions were applied on on them so often they weren't allowed to build new religious buildings new churches or synagogues um they most importantly they usually had to pay some form of taxation um often uh, a poll tax is specified and a certain amount is said to have been levied per person uh, that the communities have to pay annually in order to in order to retain that protection the the, the, the common word for this this arrangement uh, is um, this protection arrangement is dimma, um, which you or many listeners might have heard of the term dimmi to apply to, to non-Muslims. It, I suppose, strictly speaking, it applies to people who are under these under these um, sort of treaty arrangements and these 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 obligations towards the towards the new rulers uh, in return for their for their protection and their properties protection. Where was their capital or capitals during this period of time? So the first three caliphs remain centred in Medina, um, in in Arabia. There's not a lot of evidence that they went anywhere else apart from I mentioned earlier. The second caliph Omar is said to have travelled to to Jerusalem and to Syria to to participate in the surrender of that city. Uh, but otherwise, those first three caliphs remained largely in Medina. Um, after the third caliph Osman is is murdered in Medina in 656. Uh, the the people who murder him give their allegiance to this this figure called Ali, who becomes in 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 this now recognised order the fourth caliph. Uh, he becomes caliph, but Medina is obviously too hostile a place in some ways for him, and he so he moves to to Kufa in Iraq, which is a, a city that had been newly founded by the by the conquerors in Iraq. Uh, so at that point, we see the caliphate start to move away from Medina, and then during I said Ali's caliphate is really, it's not really one person's caliphate, it's a period of civil war. Um, the two main rivals being Ali based in Kufa and then Muawiyah based in Damascus. So from six, before 656, basically they're based in Medina and then from 656 we start to see the, the movement of the centre of power towards uh, Iraq on the one hand, Syria on the other hand. Can you speak about um, how they structured their state or states in 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 this area um, from an administrative perspective did they set up using english uh, latin terms like you know pro province provincias was there governors can you speak more about and, and 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 how did they because the capitals it sounds like in this period of time weren't in the mediterranean basin it was in medina you said at one point another time uh, kufa in in um in, in Iraq. So can you speak about what's known about the the coordination, how 
how administratively all this was coordinated over such a vast period of time. And whether, you know, maybe you're bringing in community, how, how they were communicating with, with, with each other, et cetera, you know, the response. Yeah, I guess there's, I guess there's two questions there that are quite, are quite big ones. Um, the, the first question about what the actual administration of, these, of this newly conquered empire looks like on the ground. Um, I think in the Rosh Hashim period, it's the evidence that we have um, the evidence we have, by the way, is, is much is much more plentiful uh, for Egypt than for than for other provinces, thanks to the survival of documents on papyrus from that from that region. Um, suggests that at a basically the more local you get, the more things stayed the same. So at the at the sort of local as you as you divide provinces into into sub districts and things at these sub district levels, um, we often see very similar people in charge to who were in charge before the conquest um, and they're doing very similar things uh, at the top level of course things do change there is a there is a replacement of uh, the, the creation of provinces uh, with governors and these governors tend to I mean they come uh, I wanted to say exclusively perhaps almost exclusively if I'm forgetting an exception from the from the Arabian conquering elite um, these these governors come from uh, come from come from yeah come from the, the Medinan uh, and 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 Mecca and Medinan um, early Muslim elites. So at that level, we do see the imposition of new le- a new level of administration. Um, but as I said, lower down, it seems to remain things go things seem to work much the same as before. There are some changes that we see being introduced in this period. Um, some of the some of the taxation seems to change a little bit this as i said this introduction of a poll tax uh, may have been new in some regions um we also do see the although um although the traditional existing languages of administration continue so greek in the roman empire and uh and uh, middle persian possibly in the Sasanian empire we do see uh, in the evidence from egypt uh, arabic being brought in on an administrative level as well um, it doesn't replace greek at all in this period but it sometimes comes in alongside it uh, one of the earliest documents we have uh dating to 643 so just after the just after the conquest of egypt is a bilingual uh, greek arabic receipts for the requisition of sheep to feed and provide provisions for the for the army in that region um so we do see some administrative changes there i mean obviously if you're going to start bringing arabic into the administration you need to start having people who can who can write it and read it um so there are some changes there but i, I think overall the message at administrative levels over the Rashidun period is continuity at the more local level and then change of rulers at the very top of the governor, governor level of, of these provinces. Your other question um, was about how much central direction there is to this. Uh, and that's a really, yeah, that's a really big question and quite a difficult one to answer. A lot of, a lot of our sources have the you know, quite commonly encountered inclination to see the hand of government behind every, or the hand of central authority behind many things. Um, and they often give the impression that caliphs in Medina or elsewhere are directing uh, the actions of, of everybody elsewhere. I, on, a, on, a, on a more realistic level, I mean, I, I mean they, they seem to clearly be appointing the gov- the caliphs do seem to be appointing the governors to these regions. And sometimes 
the dismissal of governors and trying to appoint someone else is a is a bone of serious contention and not all governors like being replaced but we but we do get the idea there that caliphs tend to have control over over that level of appointment how far caliphs in especially the ones in medina got involved in administrative decisions lower down the uh, lower down the provincial levels uh, is i suspect is is maybe we might doubt that they they took a day-to-day interest in that having appointed people they saw as responsible to to rule over the region so it's worth remembering at this point the 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 muslim community the the conquering elite if you like is very small in the in the grand scheme of the population of this region where we are i mean no one knows the numbers but we're talking a minuscule proportion of the population of the conquered regions so i think caliphs probably paid more attention to the governing of their affairs so when it comes to apportioning the 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 revenue that was now being derived from the conquered territories among the among the conquering elites i think caliphs probably paid a bit more attention to that maybe whereas the how that the, the practicalities of how that revenue was raised on the more local level might have been might have been left to more to more localized administrations in this period of time was any were any attempts uh, made at a at a uh, introducing a a, a, a centralized uh, currency throughout the um, throughout the broader broader state, or was it um, disparate currencies like coinage that, for the most part, existed in these various uh, parts of the Mediterranean? Um, again, it depends a little bit what what you mean. Um, I think in centralized currency. Um, I can clarify. I can tell you what what was on my mind. Um, so at, at this point in time, like, was there was there ever any attempt to introduce um, uh, coinage, for instance, that um, that had that came out of a central place like Medina, and then and then uh, distributed across the across the state? Yeah, that's, thank you. Yeah, no, yeah. That, that's what we don't really see in this period at all. Um, so. Um, over this period, the coinage in circulation tends to be the same coinage that had been in circulation before the conquests. So Roman coinage in those provinces and Sasanian coinage in those provinces. Um, there is even evidence that you know coins minted in Constantinople after the after these conquests were being brought into these territories still and being used. So uh, so in in the former Roman provinces, no, I think you know Roman continuation of Roman coinage seems to be largely what we see. There might be minor variations at particularly localised provincial levels. It's not until later, however. So really the the, the, the most famous initiatives and reforms of coinage come uh, about sort of 30 to 40 years after the end of the Rashidun Caliphate during the Caliphate of, of an Umayyad called Abdul Malik, um, who institutes uh, or try you know, make serious efforts to institute a more caliphate-wide coinage reform and, and more standardized forms of coinage. But we don't really see that going on in the Rashidun period, no. Okay. Um, and parts of this came up, uh, I think, in the periphery of some of your responses, but so that this episode feels like there's a bookend to it. Can you speak about um, what's known about the, the end of this period with the Rashidun and cal- cal- caliphate? Um so the third caliph, Othman, is 
was clearly was clearly a controversial figure. Um, he there's a, there's there's a lot of tensions within the early Muslim community as the empire has expanded between uh, people who had been participating from an early stage in the community's formation and the conquests who uh, felt that they were entitled to a greater share of the revenue of the of the conquered provinces and then people who had joined in later who didn't really see why the those, those the early joiners should have more money than they should um and there's, and there's other tensions as well between sort of new new muslim elites and old tribal elites and and things like that and of course caliphs you know couldn't satisfy everybody and had to pick had to pick sides and osman seemed to well picked a side that annoyed a lot of other people and so in in 656 uh sort of delegations from egypt and from uh, from Iraq, come to Medina to, you know, as a result of these grievances, and they and some of them actually end up killing the Caliph Osman, um, and this ushers in a period of civil war for a, the, about five years um, between the figure who who uh, these these people these rebels uh, give their allegiance to Ali, and then um other people in in mecca and medina who feel that they were more entitled to the caliphate and then also the governor of syria muawiyah muawiyah was a relative of osman um and so he he felt i guess he couldn't accept ali's caliphate without that being seen as an acknowledgement of the legitimacy of the murder of his relatives so he demanded retribution and when ali didn't provide that to his to his satisfaction there a, a war broke out between them and for the next five years or so, there's a war. I mean, there are there are other claimants to caliphate as well, but their Ali defeats them fairly quickly in 656, and then this war between Muawiyah and Ali goes on um, over over the, over these five years or so. It's it's a bit of an odd it's a bit of an odd conflict. There's a there's a big battle at a place called Safin on the Euphrates, um, which ends in a in a sort of stalemate, um, but it. it it seems really that Muawiyah is gradually gaining the upper hand. He seems to do a better job of keeping his allies together in a coalition. Ali seems to struggle to to sort of really enforce his own authority over his over the groups that have become allied with him. And eventually, uh, eventually, he's murdered by uh, a figure from, from one of these groups who actually broke away from his authority. But when they became dissatisfied with him, one of them actually murders him in 661. And that, I guess that, that, that then leaves Muawiyah as the sole... Well, I, you mentioned that uh, we talked earlier about Muawiyah um, had to negotiate a little bit with Ali's son, al-Hassan, but eventually Muawiyah becomes the, the only real claimant left to the caliphate uh, and based in Damascus, and he, and, he start, and he starts his caliphate then. Because Muawiyah goes to great efforts to have his son succeed him as caliph, Oh, uh, um, we start to see Muawiyah's, and we and many Muslims of centuries past have seen Muawiyah's caliphate as the beginning of dynastic rule in in the Islamic world. So that's where that's that's one reason why his reign is often seen as the you know the Rashidun caliphate is no more than the Umayyad caliphate has begun. So that's in a way that's how the Rashidun period comes to an end. Its its legacy is incredibly important. Of course, and it's in a way it's worth remembering that thinking of this period as the Rashidun Caliphate is not really necessarily how many Muslims at the time would have thought about would have thought about this this period, um, and so debates about which of these caliphs were legitimate and whether Ali was right to 
whether he should have been the first caliph or whether he was right to claim the caliphate after the murder of Osman, whether Osman was a legitimate caliph or not. These these debates go on for centuries and cause mass and cause enormous splits within the Muslim community that, that resonate through centuries. So so their legacy carries on, but that that period of civil war it, between 656 and 660, 661, that, that's what, practically speaking, brings this period to an end. Before we wrap up, I want to ask about uh, Syria. Um, so, and it's come up a bunch of times, uh, Muayya, he was a governor in this period of time, right? In Damascus, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Um, was was Syria looked at, do you believe, as another territory um, within the holdings? Or was, was there something about it that it was treated as more important than many of the other territories? Be- because yeah. Damascus, because shortly after, Damascus becomes uh, a capital of the Umayyad Caliphate as, as well. Yeah, that's a really good... That's a really good question. Um, there seems to be uh, evidence over the seventh, early eighth centuries for a certain level of regional loyalties, emerging regional loyalties in the early Islamic community, in the Muslim community. So um, sources often refer to the army by regional, the army regional identities. They talk about the Syrian army, the Kufan army, the Basran army. Um, so we do see maybe groups that start to be attached to certain provinces. Um, for the Umayyad caliphs, Syria is definitely a very important province. Um, um, partly, of course, because it's it's their power base. Um, and probably because it's their power base, they start to uh, take some measures to perhaps raise its prominence more broadly. Um, it is, of course, the if we think about um, a sort of larger Syria in this period, that uh, the, the the Arabic term is below the Sherm. It often covers like what's now also you know Jordan, Palestine, Israel, Lebanon as well. Um, and so Jerusalem is within this is within this region. And Jerusalem is, you know, for many for many Muslims have seen of this period, there seems plenty of evidence it's seen as a, a particularly important place. And we see in over the Umayyad period, we see Umayyad caliphs based in based in Damascus, um, certainly trying to make a lot of of their of their control over Jerusalem as well. Um, that's uh, again. That's it's it's not a hundred percent clear that you know all, all Muslims came to feel that way about Syria and Syria's and Syria's importance. But uh, but yeah, in the Umayyad period, we certainly can start to see a, a level of importance being attached being attached to Syria through through their efforts to to you know solidify its status as their as their power base. Uh, closing question. So, relatively speaking, the the four caliphs weren't in power a substantial a substantial amount of time. I think it's uh, quick math around twenty nine years, yeah, roughly twenty nine. Yeah. Um, how would you describe? Um, but they did. But they did gain a lot of territory in that in that period of time, in the, um, um, certainly in the the, Medi- the Eastern Mediterranean. How would you describe what their um, how their their influences and in, in, in this period of time um, may have you know uh, lived on in, in in some way in more present day terms and I ask that question very broadly. Yeah, I mean it's it's seen as a very important period in in the hist- in, in Islamic history. I mean they they are. I mean we talked at the beginning about the term Rashidun, right? They are seen by many Muslims as the rightly guided caliphs, the the embodiment of what caliphal rules should be. Um, and as much as that was contested at the time and ever since, that's an important 
that's an important part of these figures' legacy for for many later Muslims. Um, they, they, of course, oversaw the initial expansion of the Arabian community outside of that peninsula into into the Roman Empire. I mean, they, it was it was during this period that the Sasanian Empire was was completely conquered, and and that, of course, sets up a you know that's, that's a huge change in at least the geopolitical history of of this part of the world. Um, they're also seen, um, particularly uh, the second Caliph Omar and the fourth Caliph Ali, are seen as um, important figures in terms of uh, their 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 decision making, their 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 actions, their precedents are often used in later legal debates and and even sometimes theological debates uh, among later Muslims. So they're seen as having a great standing. Uh, in those areas, I mean the, I mean Shi'i Muslims, of course, have, believe that Ali is the is the figure who should have become the caliph uh, immediately following Muhammad's death, and that the others were all illegitimate usurpers. And so, and so, so for Shi'i Muslims, Ali is one of the most you know paramount figures in in history. Um, so his and his legacy is clearly very important in that regard. Uh, so there, there's many ways in which their 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 legacy and significance has, ca- has carried on uh, ever since. I mean the yeah, so both in the sort of in, in what we might think of as the as the history of the seventh century, and when you know, when the Umayyad caliphs launch further you know expansion, they're building on that and administrative reforms and whatnot. They're building on the on the on the early measures taken under under the Rashidun caliphs, but then also in these in the way that their reputations carried on being important in much later debates as well, right right down to today. Thank you for coming on the show, Harry, and sharing your knowledge with everybody. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. So again, everybody, the monograph that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Munt wrote, The Holy City of Medina, Sacred Space in Early Islamic Arabia. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Harry and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.